2: So the reason I use the metaphor of breakup is because diet culture is what TLC would call a scrub, right? Like living living on your sofa, taking all your food, all your energy, all your time, a lot of your money, and never is grateful. Is always
1: like the more you give, the more I take. Hello and welcome to The Body Protest.
3: In this podcast, we combine storytelling with science to better understand our relationship
1: with our bodies. I'm Nadia Craddock, and I'm a body image researcher. And I'm Honey Ross, and I'm a writer. This podcast is brought to you by The Pink Protest. One, two, three. Hi, Hi body, body Protest. <laughs> We're back. Uh, is there a doctor in the house, by any chance? <laughs> a, doctor? a doctor? A doctor, you say? Who? <laughs> Where could she be? Come on, tell us the title. Give us the full title. <laughs> Dr. Nadia Kralik's in the house. Ah! Oh my God. <laughs> she did that. She did that.
3: Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. It's really fun. I got my certificate in the post at the weekend and it finally feels real. It's been a whole long saga because I was supposed to do my Viva last year. It obviously got cancelled because of COVID and you know, but here we are. Here we are. I'm and
1: ready to come Dr. out. Dr. Nadia Kralik. Like- post lockdown summer you're going to be at the bar being like oh yeah it's me Dr. Nadia Craddock you know you can be getting those discounts you can be doing everything. I don't know if a PhD doctor gets any discount but you know who knows. Hey (laughs) if you don't ask you don't get. Okay Um, we are so excited to be back we are starting out with a bang of course with OG body positivity activist Virgie Tovar.
3: I am losing my mind that we spoke to Virgie. I have been following her work for years, ever since my baby body image researcher day. So when I first got into body image research, what, five, six years ago, I came across her work and, oh, chef's kiss, I love it. So for those of you who haven't come across Virgie's work, Virgie is an author, a speaker, and a podcaster. Her books include You Have the Right to Remain Fat, and the self-love revolution radical body positivity for girls of color she also regularly contributes to forbes where she covers the plus size market and how to end weight discrimination at work and her podcast Bebel Eaters Club is delicious. I love it so much. We're all big podcast fans but it's really one to to listen to. It's so well put together.
1: And you know not to give away too much of the interview because you're about to hear it but you know we had some beautiful conversations. Virgie tells us about how she found feminism and you know about her gratitude towards the queer community as well as the fat positive community for teaching her the joy of abundance. It's such a beautiful special conversation. We also chat about dating a fat positive person and the benefits that Brought to Virgie's life, and we talk about how women of color understand the connection between diet culture and other oppressive structures more readily than white women.
3: The whole conversation is such a treat, and I think what really strikes me about Virgie is that she's got such a gift at making heavy topics accessible mm. and fun. Still, I think she's got such an exuberant character, and I don't say exuberant very often, <laughs> but that is uh, Virgie, and. I mean, Honey and I, we were just talking afterwards. I mean, for weeks. Buzzing. We've been talking about this (laughs) this episode. Buzzing. Yeah, yeah. Just such a high after speaking with her. So we hope you have the same experience.
1: And please tune in till the very end because Nadia is going to be blessing us with a new segment. So without further ado, here's Virgie. I feel like a lot of people and myself, I became familiar with your work through your TED Talk. You talk about jiggling as a young girl and it's so moving. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your relationship with your body growing up. So to give context, I was a big baby, I was
2: a big kid. Um, I come from a family of big people, but I had no awareness or shame about my body until I was introduced to fat phobia at around the age of five. But before then, I had this really amazing magical relationship to my body that most children actually have, which is one of you know interacting with the world with just joy, curiosity, and pleasure and and my body was just completely integrated into who I was. I didn't have a, I think a lot of us um, through as, as we age and are introduced to how to have a body in our culture, we create distance from our body. But at that time, I didn't have that. And so um, one of my favorite things to do was to jiggle. Um, I, and I mean, that I think specifically being a, a bigger kid, I had these like jiggly bits. I had fat on my arms and my cheeks and and my tummy and my thighs. And I used to like to you know, take off all my clothes and spread out my arms and legs like a starfish and just kind of jiggle as hard as I could. And I just remember the pleasure that it gave me, like that almost like that there's that chemical release of serotonin that I can just recall. It was like so pleasurable. And I just remember thinking that it was magic, like my body was like the water in the bathtub or at the pool. And the interesting thing is that I had actually sort of forgotten or blocked out that memory for years. And it wasn't until I was about probably five or six, maybe even longer into my own anti-diet body positivity journey that I recalled that um, because it just was so I think my brain blocked it out because it was so antithetical to how I related to my body while I was in diet culture and so I think my brain couldn't reconcile it and it just shut it shut that memory yeah. off you know I really hear that
3: yeah I mean I guess from that experience they so going from that p- positive experience in your body as a a child to then, as you alluded to the diet space and getting caught up in with that, how did you then come out of it and then become the person you are now with the work that you do and, and the work that you put out in, in the world?
2: I was recently thinking about this, like you know, when because I sort of have my my story that I normally kind of I'm like okay that's that's how that process happened, but I was kind of thinking back actually, and I think that the start of it was it it, it was even further. Like I, I normally associate the beginnings of the change in my relationship to my body and leaving diet culture, um, either with the introduction of feminism to, I was introduced to feminism in my early twenties, um, and then, or, um, dating a fat positive person in my mid twenties. And normally I, I sort of, I'm like, oh, it started there, but I'm kind of, I think really it sort of started, um, when I was 18 and I had been living in a small suburb until then with the same people who had taught me to hate my body with the same boys who had told me that I was disgusting and a monster for years and years from the age of five to 18 when I graduated from high school. And then I was just so eager to get out of there. I ended up going to sort of a conservative college in kind of a rural area of California and I really hated it. Like I just did not fit in at all and it was so, it was just so uncomfortable day in and day out. So I decided to kind of abdicate and flee and I ended up moving temporarily to Italy. So I was living there and I was having realization after realization after realization. I, I was totally in the depths of my eating disorder while I was in Italy, but it was the first moment where I sort of realized I'm weird. I am not a good girl. I do not want to be on the straight and narrow. I do not want an office job. I do not want a husband. I do not want to buy a home. I do not want to have children. Um, and so, you know, I'm going to have to forge my own path somehow. And I think that it was, it was the distance and it was just like the, the high vibration of travel, I guess you could call it just like that, that space of being away from home that gave me that clarity. And I really think that that was kind of the start, right? That was like the, the first moment where I was like, I have to create something different than what has been shown to me. And I would continue to diet and I mean I called it dieting but it was absolutely disordered eating it was absolutely like anorexia like you know I mean probably subclinical anorexia now I think in retrospect but at the time I just thought I was being healthy um, never eating but anyway so that kind of was like that I feel like that seed really sprung at that time but then like I said I was introduced to feminism which at that time there was no critique of body weight or diet culture but there was a critique of body image in media Um, and then And I really think that a turning point was dating a fat positive person. I mean, the idea that someone would not only tolerate my fatness but celebrate my fatness and not see anything wrong with my fat body it just never had it it was unimaginable to me at that point and um and it was like you know he didn't really even use the language of fat positivity he just used the language of what should be considered regular human communication which is nothing is wrong with you your body is fine and nobody gets to tell you what your body looks like because that's controlling and this just was mind boggling at the time. And he really ended up helping me th- like sort of start to heal from my terror of food. And he would just sit with me in the kitchen and we would make food together and he would walk me through my fear um, of every single bite, every single ingredient, you know, felt like it was a threat. Um, and and he just sort of patiently did that with me and held my hand with me in that in that moment during that time, and then you know several years later, I started grad school and I started researching. I was really interested in fatness and how fatness impacted gender among women of color um, who had been fat their whole lives. And th- and through that research, I ended up finding fat activism, which really was kind of like the holy grail. Like, it, re- I really was like, I have found exactly, you know, this is what I've been looking for. I, I mean, I think I was like an immediate convert to the church of like fabulous fatness, mm-hmm. like Im- immediately upon meeting the people who were in that movement who were just like, like fabulous, like true, like truly unapologetically fabulous and amazing, um, and who were refusing to diet and refusing to apologize for being big, and and that re- I never turned back from that.
1: You express yourself so joyfully. I mean, you sent us a couple of photos earlier and we've just been going, oh my God, like you just make us want to do a photo shoot. Like you're so gorgeous (laughs) and glorious. It's just so beautiful to see you so, I don't know, just fully yourself, it's heaven. And, you know, I feel like you talk about the people that inspired you, you know, were there particular role models or was there a lot of it on your journey that felt like you were paving that space for yourself to almost become the role model that you didn't see? I mean, no, I had, I had, Definite role models. I think what's what's
2: unfortunate, maybe or maybe not, um, is that they're people who no one really knows, right? They're not necessarily famous. Um, they were just people who, like you know, similar to me, were weirdos. Um, a lot of the people I met in fat activism uh, were queer people. And so they already had to create an alternative reality on kind of the edge of society. And, you know, what I love about queer community so much is that it's, it's really, it's an art form. It's not just a, it's not a reluctant, drudging, joyless process um, of, of just, you know, it, it's, it's like, I think what's so powerful is the reclamation that that I see all the time that I saw in fat activism, which was that we're not just going to live our lives in this abject black and white way that society really wants to push us into. We are going to be high vibration um you know we're gonna go all the way we're gonna be loud and proud and so the people around me were those role models um I mean they just the way that they dressed the way that I mean I think it was especially as a fat person who like fat people are taught not to be friends with other fat people We're taught to avoid each other um, because, you know, there's this idea that we like look worse, quote unquote, when we're with other fat people or we look like we're not trying hard enough or something. Um, And... And so um, to just even have this vibrant, large community of fat, most of them were women or femmes. I mean, just everything, right? They taught me how to adjust my clothing. They taught me how to Mm. feel confident. They taught me how to, you know, put on eyeliner. They shared, like, and it, it was just so beautiful, right? Like, I mean, I remember... At that time, fat activism was so insular and small and intimate, and there would be these like, not just clothing swaps, so there would be like lipstick swaps. There'd be shoe swaps. People would just open up their home and be like, hey, I've got... 50 pairs of Fluvogs and any fat babe who wants a pair just come and get them. And similar, re- I just remember this like lipstick makeup swap where there were probably 500 lipsticks on the on this dinner table, <laughs> and all these fat women, all of us like fat babes, were just like hanging out, trying on lipstick. You know, we we could take whatever we wanted, and it was like they were creating. It wasn't just the the ideology or the mindset of abundance; they were practicing abundance um and there was something i think what's so amazing is like that abundance mentality that is that is fat positive that is Mm. like anti-fat phobia right because because our culture doesn't just hate fat bodies it hates largeness it hates aliveness it hates Mm. vibrancy it hates abundance right because the minute that we know that we can have abundance the the whole thing falls apart um right yeah. the whole system falls apart and so i think you know those moments were they were they were fat positive in all these different ways, like not just because we were doing it together as fat people refusing to be separate from each other, refusing mm. to shun each other, refusing to hate ourselves and each other. But we were also practicing this, this bigness, this, this, this mentality of bigness and abundance, um, you know, on the ground. And and so th- those were those are my role models, like, you know, in terms of how I fashioned myself really mm and but i think i i think there's another component to this as well which is that i have ideological role models people who again many of them people of color many of them queer people who really changed how i thought about the culture and so, and, and a lot of them aren't necessarily in the in like the fat positive or fat study space. There are people like James Baldwin and Audre Lorde, mm. um, and people like Judith Butler, and you know people just like scholars, right? Because I've always okay. been really interested in scholarship, and I've I've often looked far and wide to understand this issue. Because I've always understood it as systemic. I've always understood it not as like a siloed, this isn't a body image issue. Yes, it is. Like, right? Like, it is a body image issue. It is a gender issue. But it's 100% connected to colonialism and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And so you. I think what was powerful at that time was that um, because fat scholarship and fat studies, which my work ended up being a part of was such a baby. It was so small and so new and I ended up Kind of finding it very frustrating, where I was like, "Where is the intersectionality?" I think what's hard, like when Mm -hmm. when a body of scholarship or or you know a department or something is emerging in an academic setting, the first thing you have to do is you have to set up the basics, right? Like this is what fat studies is. This is how we study it, right? So it was very much in that one hundred one. It felt to me like that one hundred one foundational space, and I was already I was ready to be like, "How do we connect this to like intergalactic?" galactic, you know, inter like interplanetary <laughs> connection, metaphysical beyond the planes. Like I I was like already yeah. there. And so I ended up having to turn to people who are so good at world building. Again, mostly people of color, mostly queer people.
3: I mean, I think that's so powerful and I think something over the course of what you were saying that's really struck me and I think is really important is that there's not just a a single turning point in people's journey from Mm. being trapped in diet culture and, and having uh, struggles and difficulties with their bodies and their relationship with food. You spoke about the distance and being in Italy and then the feminist scholarship and then the fact positive partner, and then going into graduate school, there's all of these touch points and they build on each other. So it's not just a one thing or a one fix It's all of these things. It's easy to to look and be like, oh, that's what I want. And it's, I think just having that laid out, I think it's really useful for people to hear. I mean, so much with like the the fat community, the um, queer community, as you mentioned, and that vibrancy and finding people who, I love the word use the word vibrate, that's a really smart word for for the energy coming off
1: well I guess and finding your weirdos you know finding yeah. people yeah. that make you feel like wow I found my people and I think yeah god I so relate to when I first became friends with other fat women I was like oh we can do this this you know yes, just like, yes. Yeah. it's so liberating and just being like they get it they get like the summer chafe they get all of the stuff mm, that we've yes. never been allowed to talk about and it's so liberating and you just feel like you don't have to do
3: it alone. So many people feel like they're a weirdo or a, a misfit, but it's just finding your community, right? It's yeah. just finding, finding the people you, where you belong. Completely.
2: There is the moment where you have to decide that you're opting out, you know? I think that you mm, yeah. do have to have that moment. And and I, do, I, I 100% believe like most of us want to opt out. Um, Most of us want to get off this ride. Um, it's not fun for most people. Yeah. And so- I think that for me, it was like slowly disavowing. How would I put it? It's like you're when it's kind of like when you have to um, renounce citizenship to a country
0: um, yes. <laughs> in order to get
2: like you know whatever. Some countries expect that from you if you want citizenship in their in their in their country. But it's kind of like that. You, you do have to yeah. have that moment where you cross the line and you're like, I'm not interested in this building into this project. That has been laid out before me that has hurt me and hurt so many others. I primarily work with people identify as women. I I know how much fear there is in just taking that step out. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's such a liberating moment. It's like we have all this terror of it. And then when it happens, you're like, oh, my God, this is the best thing ever. (laughs)
1: well it's it's interesting when you were like you know we're taught as fat people to stay away from other fat people and it's like well it's like they want to keep us away from each other so yeah. we don't know how fucking good it is when we're yes. reunited <laughs> or so we can't unionize yes 100 <laughs> 100
3: i love the analogy of, of losing the citizenship and i think yeah. that another analogy in, in some of your work That both honey and I have spoken about that we really like is is the analogy of breaking up with diet culture. And and you say like you have to have that intention of like this is this is something where I do want to opt out. But for people who are currently still feeling trapped, how can they start that breakup process?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of it starts with mindset. So the reason I use the metaphor of breakup is because diet culture is what TLC would call a scrub right like living <laughs> living on your sofa taking all your food all your energy yeah. all your time yeah. a lot of your money and never as grateful is always like the more you give the more I take mm-hmm. um yeah. right which is like a dominatrix rule that I love um it's just like but in the in the case of diet culture it's like you know it's like that ungrateful leeching boyfriend. And I think a lot of us really, like when we're still in diet culture, we think that he's like a prize. Like we think that he is like, everybody's looking at us like, hey, like, like that y'all look great. There's people who are always going to be, who have those optics, right? Or not maybe not optics, but have that lens, right? And yeah. and, and I think that, you know, when you can shift and recognize, but wait what am I actually getting from this? What am I yeah. actually getting from this? And I think that's the moment where things shift. And, and I, I had this conversation the other day. I was really, really powerful um, with uh, with a fat woman. And she was talking about how um, one of the things that kept her in diet culture was men, was um, the desire for relationship yeah. with a cishet man. Um and she sort of and, – and she was reflecting um, on how absolutely in, in, in her own disordered eating and she also has some gastrointestinal issues that have created really intense stress upon her body that have led to weight loss that um, was really scary for her and really negative for her um, and involved like literally just throwing up every single thing that she ate, like out of her control right just her body just mm-hmm. did something the doctors still don't understand what happened and so she's talking about being in the depths of of terror and an illness and men just flocking to her in that state. Okay. Um, and I've just talked to so many women who have that experience where it's like they either are in the depths of a drug addiction because they're trying to control their weight through using meth, for example, or they're yeah. very, very ill and they've their body has deteriorated because of an illness. And men are just giving them so much love in those periods. And and she sat – she sort of – the thing that was really poignant that she kind of concluded on was she said, you know, what did dieting give me? It attracted assholes. It gave me a gastrointestinal disorder. Most likely it was connected to, like, my my issues with dieting and disordered eating, right? Um, it attracted, like, abusive people. And, yeah. and I, so I think what's important to recognize is, like, even if you are getting – The quote-unquote, I call them prizes or a privilege um, that that diet culture is supposed to give you. Take a step back and see. What are you actually getting, right? Maybe you have the, mm-hmm. maybe on the, out, like from the outside in, you look like you have it all together, but like, are you actually happy? Is this, mm-hmm. does your, does, is your partner totally cool with you starving yourself and not being hungry, like being hungry all the time? Um, is that a partnership that you want to fight for? Um, and I think, yeah. I think that was a thing for me, like when, you know, in the depths of my eating disorder and, and then you know, getting the privileges and the prizes that I had always dreamed of having, it was completely soured by the fact that I'm like, how are you man by my side who says that they love me? Totally not noticing that I never eat. Totally not noticing that I um, am hungry all the time. Totally fine with the fact that when we go out to, to a restaurant, I don't order any food. And so I think for me, it's like, you know, again, like kind of assessing what are you actually getting out of this and being really, really brutally honest with yourself. Because the truth is, I I don't even have to know you to know because because like diet culture is violence. It's colonialism. It's white supremacy. It's misogyny. Good things do not come from those things right? Like good things don't like, I'm always like poop garbage only begets poop garbage. That is the rule. That is physics, (laughs) chemistry. That is the rule of like the universe, right? Like, um, and so I don't have to know you to know that if you are, if that is the practice that you are engaging to get the things that you want, there is something, there's something spiritually being stolen from you. Um, because these systems are meant to destroy the spirit, for that person who's still afraid, it makes complete sense that you're afraid. We live in a culture where you're taught the worst thing that you could be in the world is to be a fat person. But I think I would argue, right, the worst thing in the world that you could be is someone who is hungry, who is self, who is in the depths of self-hatred and feel like they, they can't get out. Um, that is much worse. Um, and so that that's what I think I would say to that person.
3: Yeah, what an answer. And I love how you combine the storytelling and the science with the poop garbage (laughs) (laughs) baguette poop garbage because (laughs) combining the storytelling and the science is the very much the ethos of the body protest and you just did that so beautifully.
1: So obviously you talked about earlier being a contributor for Forbes and you write about the plus size market. And I feel like there's such a conversation at the moment specifically, but, you know, and it's been growing in the last couple of years of, you know, what is an inclusive brand? How would you define an inclusive brand and what are the standards we should be holding brands to? Yeah, I
2: mean, I've been slowly but surely learning a lot of um, language things. So, like, inclusive um, is a very specific word that means a specific thing, and extended sizing means a very specific thing. And yeah. and it, I mean, I think for the layperson, it's a little bit complicated to understand. Um, but yeah, there's a whole fashion lingo that I'm that I'm again still learning. So, but I think you know the the the, the spirit of the question is really like. You know what should sure. we be looking for, and and I really, I mean, I, I'm immediately thinking about um, a brand called Superfit Hero that recently truly blew my mind. Uh, I want I'm thinking of two examples that really blew my mind. The first one, Superfit Hero, they had been offering extra small to six X, I believe, for quite a long time and then recently made the decision to extend to 10x and specifically said we have limited resources as a as a company and we are going to dedicate those resources to extending our sizing upward and in that vein because we have limited resources we are getting rid of extra small small and medium um and i just found that was like um, yeah. That was like so extraordinary, <laughs> right? To sort of say we're we are letting go of the people who, according to the data, market data, are the biggest customers, and and I think right their their clients or customers who are in that size range were really disappointed. I mean, obviously, I understand they make it a great product. So it makes complete sense that they're that those customers would be disappointed. But I think what's what was extraordinary, right? In an ideal world, um, Superfit Hero would have all the money, all the time, all the personnel to make sizes for like every kind of body. But they they sat down and they were like, here are our limitations and here's what we're doing with that information. And I found that like those kind of decisions where you're like Where, you know, you're starting out, you're a smaller company, you're hoping to expand but we all understand that we all understand that every single person, and yes, even huge companies, have their limitations, and and it's important to know they are making a decision to cater to extra small, small, medium, right? Um, and I think what 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 that even that news item as someone who's been doing this work for ten years, it was it blew my mind to be like, what mm. you could choose not to do small, yeah. extra small, small, medium, what like what is this world where like because I think that there there was absolutely this internal fat phobia that it's so much to ask for anything beyond like an XL it's so much if anything beyond a 3x what like you know I like it just it's 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 presented as if it's like impossible um and then in in reality right the companies are just continuously choosing to do that so i think it really unveiled a few things the second example i'm thinking of that truly like mind boggling was the the also an athletic wear brand called athleta um they're associated with like gap and banana republic they're like the athletic arm uh, of that of that sort of I don't know, conglomerate or whatever you want to call it. So they did a few things that were amazing. One, they're like, we have 500 employees nationwide. We are training every single one of them on body positive language. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. They have to go through a a training program that helps them not use fat phobic language just in relationship to their clothing, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. just a fit. It's literally just a fit tutorial, Um, how to not use biased language. The other thing they're doing is that they're having their executives go through training uh, of anti-bias training. And then, um, they decided to put up a billboard in Times Square with a plus size person in, in, uh, as a central person in the, in the campaign. Um, and that person started to get harassed a lot online and they, they doubled down and defended her. Um, as That's a company, so good. it's so refreshing. Yeah, totally. And then I think like the last thing I want to say is, uh, that truly like was mind boggling, uh, I was on like a call with their, with like their, their people, like a press call. And, and, and like, I had this moment where like jaw drop where the, um, one of the, one of the, like the executive people was like, our plus size customer spends 90% more than our straight size customer and she comes back twice as often and I think you know for me yeah. like again there's this idea I mean first of all right there's this myth that there's a thin majority like it, like certainly <laughs> in the United in the, like they just don't exist right like literally um so like in the United States about 70 percent of U.S. women are plus size um yeah, and same so here, UK
1: average is size 16 I yeah
2: believe. yeah and
1: no plus size but still
2: yeah so I feel like I feel like we have this idea in fashion that we're like showing up to the conversation hat in hand um without the 70 percent of the people behind us and I think that we need to flip that mindset um and just sort of demand from a place of like you're being like you're being weird for making for trying to pretend there's there's a majority that there that there isn't so for me it's like companies who are making those kinds of moves whether it is and and for me I'm not a purist, right? I'm like if you're doing this because you're ideologically driven, that's awesome, that's like not aw, that's awesome. <laughs> like I'm like that's fucking awesome. And if you're doing it just because you looked at the numbers and it's obvious, cool. I'm also good with that. So I think like yeah. you, know, you think about like the two examples I gave. I think for sure Superfit Hero was like very ideologically driven and they're very overt about being political. They're very overt. They use they use political language. They use the word fat. They're very clear. Like the person, the CEO is like very political and very clear about it. And Athleta is more of a traditional, you know, athleisure brand that just sat down with the numbers and were like, it's, it's ridiculous not to serve this client. Um, so we're going to do what we have to do to make sure that she comes back and feels welcome. Um, and so anyway, I, I, so, so those are, those are my like things that I've loved uh, learning about, like since I've been contributing for Forbes.
1: I know I so love hearing you say that no you're being weird because my entire life I have felt gaslit by looking at you know yes. you've expressed it that you see you know the plus size clothes that always sell out first online always yes. the, the biggest yes. sizes are always sold out. it's because we are the majority and it's like why, why yes. are Being catered to and it's so you know it's so amazing to hear you talk about this and I'm so thrilled that you're covering this in Forbes like it just it makes me so happy about the future.
2: Yes, me
3: too. There's just, as you say, such a clear business case for it. And with that first example about the choosing to not have the smaller range and, and go and extend up, because I think that's what we hear so much from, from brands is like, oh, you know, we're, we're limited. And, and so that's why we can't go beyond a 16, beyond an 18. Like, I don't know, we only have limited resources. So we, we can't do anything more, but we're going to change our offering is... It's really powerful, I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, totally. And I want to be clear, like I think doing so much writing in this space has taught me, it absolutely is. I mean, unfortunately, because the fashion industry is so fat phobic just from top to bottom it goes all the way from fashion school all the way up they don't want to teach plus size patterning in fashion school um you're just on your own if you want to make plus size clothing as a a designer in fashion school you're on your own to try and figure it out so i mean that's absolutely real and absolutely again like the The machinery, like, for example, if your clothing requires complex machinery that is very expensive, right? Those costs are very real, but I think it's important to say, you know, there's this idea that you know you do have a certain number of resources you can choose to do what you feel like as a company your vision is um this idea that you have nothing and are therefore you know like have your hands tied behind your back um that just that's it's not that's not the whole story Mm -hmm. you know i think there's this i think we really do need to start troubling like well do you need to sell extra small small and medium because that market is very 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 well taken care of Mm um so you know if you want to take the resources that you have um, and and allocate them differently and learn how to sort of do the things that you need to do to, to accommodate a different kind of customer, you 100% can do that. And it might take a little bit longer, right? Like I think I'm thinking about not to get too into the weeds on this, but I was talking to someone else who makes um, anti-chafing shorts um, for people of all sizes. And um, and she was talking about how there's this machine, it's a knitting machine, um, and it's a tube. If you want to create seamless undergarments, which she really wanted to do because she was really concerned with comfort, Um she wanted to create a seamless uh undergarment. So you have to have a very special machine which costs like a hundred thousand dollars. Um and and she was like, a lot of people cheat and they'll say it's a 3x, 4x, but it's actually only the machine is only supposed to make a 1x. Um and so she's like, so we went out of our way to go through the funding cycles and get the whole, and, and it's like, right, like, I think it goes to show um, that if you're driven to do this, right, if she she was happy to approach people, be innovative, be a little bit scrappy, get some crowdfunding going, right, she was totally happy to do that legwork. She's just one person, like, she's one CEO, right, and so she was happy to do it, and so I think it's important to just recognize, right, like, there are costs attached, and, and all. Also, if you're a CEO, you're an innovative motherfucker. You can figure this out. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know? One hundred percent. No, it's like we should be I don't I don't want to say challenging, but yeah, challenging our CEOs to be more innovative and to be pushing I mean to be pushing the side. Yes. I just think it's like, why are we not? And it's like it is such a huge market and it is a market that will be loyal and return because it's such a scarce market. So it's like, I, I, you know, it just makes sense.
3: Right. And to that point of innovation, because I've had similar conversations, but with people in, in fashion, but also advertising and beauty and one CEO from the beauty industry said almost exactly that point in terms of doing this work in terms of being more inclusive, they said, we're, world leaders in terms of making sure and being we're so competitive in terms of our right, product
0: right, with like so yes. much
3: energy in terms of the product that we're competitive on the market but can we also be competitive on our inclusiveness on our social responsibility mm, on yes. our social purpose stuff and I think again that's it's so like it almost feels like a no-brainer when you put it like that because it's like yeah we've got some of the best minds in in the top of business doing those kinds of things making those kinds of Decisions, And we've seen, again, as we've discussed, it's like you're leaving dollars on the table if you're not catering to 70% of your potential market.
1: Yeah,
2: absolutely.
3: Virgie, I would love to ask you about your most recent book, Self-Love Revolution, Radical Body Positivity for Girls of Color. And I'm curious why it felt important to focus on girls of color specifically when talking about body positivity.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that um, even to this day, the conversation around disordered eating or on body image, it really is portrayed as a white issue, as a white woman and a white girl's issue. And I think in actuality, right, like we know because of racism, white supremacy and anti-blackness, right, that like absolutely girls of color have body image issues, um, you know, have issues with food, have issues with all of these things, right? And so I, I think it was right, like political to even just say, to demarcate the space mm-hmm. as like, this is not just a white woman's issue. Um, and then I think specifically to talk, to to have time and space to really focus on how connected racism and white supremacy is to how we see ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times, um, and I've been trying to grapple with whether it's self-imposed or if it's a real thing, I do feel pressure to kind of move along fairly quickly on the conversation around how connected whiteness and white supremacy um, are to diet culture and to fat phobia. Um, And it felt so powerful to kind of you know, just have a whole book dedicated to that lens being front and center. Um, I mean, you can kind of imagine almost like a lot of books that are um, focused on this issue, they'll kind of maybe have one chapter that's like on intersectionality, um, or maybe one interview or something like that. Um, And so I just love that it was like this opportunity to talk to girls of color and i think what was powerful was before you know in preparation for writing the book i talked to lots of young women that was so illuminating um they just like had so much wisdom and so much language around what was happening and and it absolutely like i i tried to honor that when i was writing the book and i think the other thing was like i was realizing so much For me, um, it felt so nourishing in a way that I wasn't expecting to be able to write just to a brown and black audience, um... Like, I could, I don't know how to explain it, right? I think a lot of times, again, I do feel pressure to speak to a white audience or a thin audience or like whatever the perceived majority um, person is at whatever publishing place I might be doing work with. And I really felt like, oh my God, this feels so good to just sort of the like, I look, I think about the person I'm writing this book for and I relate to her. Like I, I like, like there are a lot, I can, I can look in the mirror and kind of, kind of say like, I'm talking to the younger version of myself with the specific dynamics that I face. And I faced as a, as a girl, I think like one of the things that's really important to understand is that, um, you know, girls of color, like their position to diet culture is just really different than for white young girls, for girls and young women. Um, and girls of color engage in diet culture for different reasons. And, and and a lot, right, like I think a lot of it is subconscious um, in the sense that, you know, when you are, A brown or black person, one of the things that you can do to perform assimilation um, is to be dieting and exercising all the time because it is highly valued by this white society and health, like quote unquote health, um, which in our culture means a thin body, is currency. Um, So people of color can navigate the white world more easily if they're seen as less threatening um and and dieting and engaging in dieting is part of that process. And so I think those kind of nuances were at the heart of of this book and I think specifically talking to girls of color um from the place of like like one of the most damaging things that racism does is that it teaches you it makes you feel like you're just bad and dirty and i really wanted to get to the core of like you're not bad you're good you're not dirty you're not wrong you're not weak um i think that right like what again another thing that racism does is that it erodes at our sense of power and um and i just sort of wanted to create a little something Um, that was there to say, you can trust your body, you are powerful, you can listen to your intuition, you are connected to the universe, you are made of stardust. Um, All of the things that, frankly, girls of color don't get told. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that um, the darker you are, the more adultified you are. And, And adultification is just the process of projecting an adult level of maturity or understanding onto a child. And like fat girls experience this, and girls of color—the darker you are, the more you experience it. So I, I really wanted to say, like, you know, this is a gift, and you absolutely get to have this too.
3: I mean, there's so much you said in there, but I think the what you said at the beginning, in terms of people wanting to move you on from this conversation, and I I wonder if it's it's that huge discomfort. I think people, particularly who are operating in positions of power and used to being in spaces of privilege, are can maybe take one topic at a time so it's like okay if we're going to talk about racism we can talk about racism and and that alone right um and then but if we're talking about diet culture and if we're talking you know yeah okay it's not good for everyone and women in particular maybe to be or it's not good for people to be dieting so we can we can tackle that but to show the link between these two problems and how they're so interconnected i think blows people's minds and will just make people feel so incredibly uncomfortable that I, I completely believe you um, and can imagine people moving you along in that conversation because of the discomfort I can see it. Causing.
2: I think what's interesting is like when I talk to audiences of color, this is all intuitive. There's mm, nothing. Right. Nobody's like not getting this. Nobody's like, oh, my God, too much information. Frankly, I do think that there is a lot of knowledge in the bodies of people of color, like even if they don't necessarily have that articulated link, linguistic understanding, quote unquote, like in the way that you can be like, oh, this is exactly what's happening in this moment, mm-hmm. um, you kind of can feel it and you kind of know. And I think fun, and this goes back to a theme from earlier where it's like that concept of being on the edge of society, kind of being an outsider. Um, people of color already always feel that way. Mm-hmm. And so there's a different level of commitment and a sense of like insiderness, um, that it, it isn't as, I guess what I'm saying is like, I can tell a person of color, like the whole system's fucked. And they're like, yes, that sounds correct. And then it, it's, it's a much different situation for a white person to hear that because they're just in a completely different position of the system. They're like inside. Right. So it's like, I mean, it's literally like telling someone who's outside of a house that's falling hmm. apart, that that house is falling apart, tell the people inside the house that it's falling apart it's much more distressing um and so I, I mean i have a lot of empathy frankly for for both positions um but and so so anyway yeah but like i think that it ends up creating this reality where i do feel like okay let's move it along you know
3: mm-hmm. yeah and i think then to the point of how people of color maybe fall into diet culture is through that proximity to whiteness and access to, to capital and acceptance and being less other. So, I mean, just everything you said really just to echo it is, is such a crucial part of the conversation that does get overlooked. So I'm just really glad that you're talking about it and that you've created that space for girls of color in particular through the book.
1: So, you know, you have told us so much. I mean, and, and in that last conversation, you told us so much about creating spaces for people who don't always have a space for themselves. What do you do to create a space for yourself and to look after yourself and to kind of, you know, I don't know, to make yourself feel at home in your body? What are the things you do? Uh, I mean, so many things. I'm somebody
2: who is very driven by my pleasure and my desire. You know, I really think that when I decided that I wasn't going to engage in diet culture anymore, I, I think I really opened up a line of communication. Uh, with my body, and and I, I was I, th- I was just writing about this the other day um, for my own personal like self in my journal, um, just sort of writing about like wow I really thought that I was just like trying to not have an eating disorder and diet anymore, but it led to all these unexpected connections in my body. Like I can just hear it. Just is so obvious and it's it's gotten to the point where if i don't like something or i don't want to do something it it it's almost like unbearable to do it um and i really think our culture is so good at like shutting that voice down um and so i fe- i feel like that process of like taking care of myself feels very integrated and intuitive and and so like i think i mean the, the example i'm thinking of right now is like last night i went to bed and i was so excited because i got these little like Madelines with chocolate chips in them yesterday, um, and I was like, mm. "Oh, I can't! Let, oh my god! Like the <laughs> coffee is going to be so good at this." The Madelines, the butter, and the little chocolate chip surprises, um, and I was like, legit, ex- like had a hard time falling asleep because I was so stoked about these Madelines. <laughs> me it's like you know that that little thing where i'm like i want a madeline with chocolate chips i have procured it i am now excited to have it in the morning um like that's a
1: tiny (sighs) thing and
2: yeah like, you know, um, no, it's like meeting your needs. It's listening yes. to what your
1: heart desires and finding a way to provide that for yourself. It's, there's nothing more beautiful than
2: that, truly. Yes, 100%. So, like, those kinds of things. And that, uh, there's a lot of things I think that people kind of think of, um, like going out in nature or like meditating or, you know, eating when you're hungry, um, etc. Those are all really important self care things. But um, I think in addition to that, um, I really try to make space to kind of trust my body, even when it kind of wants to do something that I'm like oh that's kind of odd okay we haven't done that before but you want to do it sure um and and uh and like kind of I don't know like nurturing that inner child or that inner creative or something um is is how I do that I have plants I have two baby netherland dwarf bunnies that certainly feel like they've opened up my heart so that's also great (laughs) oh my goodness
3: Virgil you've been such an incredible guest on the body protest before we go, how can we and our listeners find and support your work?
2: Yes, thank you for asking. Um, I am most active in terms of social media on Instagram. So I'm at Virgie Tovar, V-I-R-G-I-E-T-O-V-A-R. Um, you can go to my website, virgietovar.com. Um, also listen to my podcast, Rebel Eaters Club. Um, it's on Apple or Spotify or Stitcher or anywhere you get your podcasts. And then finally, I have um, a new book coming out in spring of 2022. It's a journal book um, that is, Ooh. yes, it's like, you know, it's, it's journal. It's journaling towards a better relationship to your body and there's going to be stickers um, and there's this amazing illustrator who's going to do all the illustrations. I'm so excited. Um, So that's coming out. And then I'm also, last thing, I've been um, working with a travel company lately. So I'm about to release a new um, trip uh, like a, sort of like a a body positive, like, you know, (laughs) like, like body positive travel, if you will. Um, so I've been, I'm going to be releasing a few of those over the next several months and over the next year. So mostly find updates on my, instagram
3: it's bali right i think i've seen it on your
2: yeah i went to so bali sold out and like now we're okay you you could maybe be the first to know like the next trip is to italy um so we're gonna be eating our way through italy and i'm so excited nadia we're going
1: (laughs) so dr nadia I'm feeling particularly riled up after that episode. I feel like Virgie talked beautifully about plus-size fashion and about brands being more inclusive, which I know is actually very much in the same vein as your PhD. I was wondering if you could give us some delicious information, a little, a little <laughs> slurp, a little slurp of knowledge, uh, and tell us a bit more about that.
3: Of course. Now that I do have my PhD, time for me to pull my finger out and um, share. <laughs> so, what's really funny about talking about PhDs is that obviously it's this whole big 80,000 word home (laughs) of information so maybe like to distill it. What I aim to do in my PhD is speak to people in fashion advertising and beauty to see how we can be more inclusive in terms of body size representation very much through the lens of corporate
1: social responsibility. So Nadia could you tell me what corporate social responsibility is?
3: Of course so corporate social responsibility or CSR is a business term that refers to a business's voluntary contributions to society beyond its economic and legal commitments so a simple way of thinking about it is how they quote do good in the world beyond creating their products or services the term is a little bit old-fashioned in practice and there's loads and loads of other terms that get circulated so anything from creating shared values to social purpose to corporate citizenship to ESG which is environmental social and corporate governance and there there are just loads and loads more but I found CSR quite useful as as a broad conceptual like umbrella framework Um, because also there are many variations in terms of how businesses engage on social issues so this could be anything from like giving money to charity to investing in their employees well-being also probably should say that csr is not new corporate social responsibility is not new it kind of dates back to the 1900s you have examples like rockefeller who gave away large sums of money to social causes but also what's useful to think about in terms of csr is that it's not always good. So although it's how companies do good in the world and contribute to society, it's it's not always as simple as that. It gets a bit murky. Well, and... is it
1: how they're trying to be perceived as good, as well as that? That's the that's the other that's side of it. Spot on. Yeah. Yeah. It's spot scary on when a company a lot... wants us to like them because they're a company, not a person. Right. I think
3: that's that's spot on in terms of is it a smoke screen? Mm. What are they trying to what's yeah, going on? What's going on behind Especially... <laughs> So what else is happening? I think we are, as consumers, are more and more aware of what businesses are doing and we're always looking at disconnects, right? So if a company is saying, oh, we're a feminist brand and then they don't look after their female employees, like... Yeah, it's exactly. like something's sense. not adding up like, for me. Yeah, exactly. I think people see that more and more. Or
1: even, I mean, slightly different to that, but, you know, recently mm. with Rickso saying, I feel bad roasting Rickso, but I actually am going to, of saying guys we just want to celebrate all bodies so you're welcome we've added a size 16 and you're like that's not checking out for me obviously that's on a much smaller scale but it's that kind of uh, cognitive dissonance
3: and that's exactly it it's a really complex thing to think about but really really interesting and really interesting thinking about it in terms of inclusivity and representation of bodies and I think what Virgie was saying is really interesting because it's you have these two perspectives where it's like I'm doing this as a part of my social purpose so I really believe in the representation and inclusion of people of different body shapes sizes abilities etc and, and like that's really part of the ethos of the company or they're just like you know what I'm gonna make a buck here and <laughs> I'm really gonna go for it and very much like how Virgie said like I don't care about the motive I don't think many people do it's like if one however we're getting to the end point
1: completely it's like however we get there I don't care if people are doing it for dodgy reasons I just want to be able to wear ripso you know it's (laughs) yeah
3: yeah (laughs) but yeah that's that's totally the point in the interest of transparency like my work is completely funded by Dove so the Unilever brand and Dove very much is part of that social purpose and obviously they fund all of the research that we're doing and the getting body image intervention tools out.
1: Globally. Globally. So, I mean, what were some of the things that surprised you most about your findings?
3: Good question. It's hard to know whether it's surprising or not. But so with one of the studies, I'll, I'll just focus on on one for for this for this noodle for this slurp <laughs> this little slurp um so the first study I did was I mean it was just so so interesting I spoke to 45 different executives working in fashion advertising and beauty at really quite senior level so that was uh, far in itself um what's well, every time I talk about this, I'm always like, oh, the shame of it is that I can't say who I spoke to. Yeah. I can't say which companies were represented. For the but, sake of you know, history,
1: can we all visualize that it's Merrill Street, yeah. and Devil Wears Prada I mean, <laughs> and we, you're
3: walking we can, in <laughs> that's, that's, that's great. I mean, so, I, you know, I did go into some of the major international advertising agencies. But what was really interesting from what they were saying is that I did really get that piece that that Virgie said in terms of there's there's almost like these two different ways of looking about it. So And there were people who generally, I believe, care. So it was interesting, speaking. most of the people I spoke to were women, and a lot of them shared their own stories of of struggling with a uh, negative body image or not feeling represented when they were growing up, and now they're in a position of power, they can enact change. And some of them were very candid in, in the fact that they said, I have replicated the ideal in in my in my past. I've done that. I've done that. I've done that. And and it's been there's been a couple of different things that have flicked the switch. So the Me Too movement, I think, was powerful. Wow. That. So, so that
1: changed a lot of kind of women in power's minds, essentially. Of maybe when they had been conforming to I don't know societal expectations, they were like, "And fuck this! Now let's actually push yeah, the agenda I, that serves us." Now.
3: Yeah, and I think it's going back to the idea of cognitive dissonance, yeah. right? So if you if you are really behind the Me Too movement. like You're only showing objectified images of women and a very narrow exclusionary representation of women. There is that disconnect. So I think that's definitely part of it. Obviously people are talking about the bottom line and profit and it's not as easy as it sounds. And people did talk through some of the, the different challenges. And also when you think about businesses, it's a whole ecosystem. So you might, as the senior creative director at an ad agency, be really behind inclusive representation and really want to have people of different sizes and ethnicities and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But because an advertising agency is paid by the brand, if they don't buy into it, then you're stuck, right? Because then it's it's positions of power and who who's, who's holding the purse string. So you could be then... Obviously, it depends on the relationship and if you've been working with each other for a long time and you can kind of work and kind of push people a little bit. And I think there was a lot of that how to be an agent of change from within the company. And then the other thing, of course, which will come of no surprise to you and I think many of our (laughs) listeners, is that people are really stuck on weight and health. Yeah. Really, really stuck.
1: That does not surprise me.
3: (laughs) So they were like, yeah, sure. Like we want to be more inclusive. We understand that showing very skeletally thin women is not. Youthful or healthy or good or what we want to put then, out in the world the thought
1: that terrifies However, them even more. yeah the thing that fills yeah. them with even more dread is like but what, but what if she's fat
3: yeah and very much into the public health rhetoric of like we don't want to be promoting ill health by like promoting people in larger bodies like there's very much there's like a fear around no, that. And,
1: but also because i think that is unfortunately probably a lot of the shouting that would be done at them if they you know in most of their positions because you know, living as a fat woman, there's always some fucker saying I'm promoting obesity. And I'm like, no, I'm just fat and living my life. You know what I mean? And so companies must be getting that on an insane scale if that's, you know, they, they, they do anything that goes against the grain.
3: That's it. And I think that's part of what holds them back because in society, we do have these phobic attitudes. And obviously at the end of the day, a company is a company and their purpose is to make money. So if consumers are like, this is toxic and awful it's always going to push them But I imagine push them back. they must be
1: hearing toxic and awful from both sides. Like I kind of right. feel like it, at this point, that's when it becomes about the social responsibility, surely, because it's like, okay, well, we're weighing up which is more toxic and which is more awful.
3: Completely. it. And I think there is a lot of education to be done, not just for people who work in fashion, advertising and beauty. I think it's a societal education that needs to be done about weight and health, like right, that we we've spoken about so much on the podcast. And I think I also don't want to, um, I know it's easy to hate on on businesses but
1: yeah, that's, a lot of them are trying a lot of people well, look there are people behind businesses and people are trying
3: exactly and also like even within my own field even within public health as, as, as we know and have discussed people in public health people in psychology people in the eating sort of field there are still these views about weight that are problematic because it's a systemic thing it's not just them and them alone being hateful
1: fat phobia is a systemic issue it is something much larger it's connected to so many other systemic issues it's like the fact is there will always be people butting heads on this uh until that changes from an early age
3: right so then you've got some companies who are almost brave enough to be on that pedestal and, and keep pushing boundaries keep pushing boundaries but i think also you need to be in some ways able to resist the pushback and whether that's because you're such a big company that you can ride the wave and you can buff in the storm or that you just believe in it so fundamentally that you just from a moral level couldn't do anything else so I think it's it's really interesting it's really complex it'll be I mean I'd love to speak to the same 45 people again now just like three years on
1: to see how the landscape's to, changed yeah because, because i things think it's so has. different now yeah
3: yeah i think this is a really fast moving topic and how people are thinking about it and i think there's more education out in the world all the time so it's it's really interesting and then also i think with more companies doing it the more emboldened other companies feel to do it also it does fall under the umbrella of social responsibility for me because it is body image and appearance-based discrimination are social justice issues they are social issues they are public health issues it is a way for companies to improve public health to address some of the toxicity in our world and they can also make money from it so it's win-win-win.
1: Nadia for people who can't get enough of your tasty tasty knowledge noodles is there a place where we can read more of this information?
3: With the study I was just talking about with the 45 business professionals in advertising fashion and beauty I have got that paper written up and it's published in the journal body image although it is behind a paywall but we are going to create a google drive so all of you, our lovely listeners, can access all the papers that we talk about on, on the podcast, because you know, science shouldn't be
1: uh, Science shouldn't be behind a paywall.
3: <laughs> yeah, science should not be behind a paywall. So we're happy to, to share and set that Google Drive up. And we'll put a link in our show notes. And that'll be the first paper in there, my little PhD study.
1: Nadia, thank you so much for sharing your delicious knowledge with us today. There'll be many more of these to come.
3: Oh, well, it's a treat. I love noodles. (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Body Protest.
1: We really hope you've enjoyed this episode and it would mean the world to us if you could subscribe, rate and review. You can follow Honey on Instagram at HoneyKinney. And you can follow Nadia at
3: Nadia.Craddock. This podcast is produced and edited by the glorious Davy Grant.
1: And it's brought to you by the Pink Protest Podcast Network.